So what if we could be a church where every seeker found Jesus? Now we know that if a person's seeking, God is working in their heart, right? But what if we were that church, not just this building, not just always bringing people here, but we were a people. We knew the gospel well. We knew how to interact with people. We're praying for people. And a person who was seeking Jesus, God working in their heart, we were the instruments to bring that person to himself. Wouldn't that be cool? What if we were a place where every person who was seeking Jesus found him? What if we were a place where every believer grew deeper? Not just as a hobby, not just something they do, but truly determined to follow hard after Jesus Christ and do what needs to be done, make the sacrifices they need to make to follow hard after him. What if we were in that place? And what if we were a place where every person, every person experienced care and connection? You know, many people fall in love with the church before they fall in love with Jesus. They see the care and acceptance of other believers. Not so that a person stays in their sin or their confusion, but so that we can introduce to them this life-transforming power of Jesus. Seekers find Jesus. Believers grow deeper. And everyone experiences community and care. You know, that's what we have been studying about as we've gone through 1 John, this letter that one of Jesus' disciples wrote to these churches in southwestern, what is today southwestern Turkey. And John all along has been talking to us about what it means to have true communion and what it means to really be following hard after Jesus. John's an old man when he's writing this in his 70s and 80s, way above the life expectancy of that day. And he is writing from Ephesus to these churches surrounding Ephesus, again, southwestern Turkey. And he writes five letters from Ephesus, 1 John being one of them. And he writes this letter for five reasons. If you have your sermon notes, you can follow along with me. First, he writes to encourage Christian belonging. We've been talking about community and connection and engagement during this whole series. Being involved in community is critical if we're going to grow in our Christian walk. And that's why college kids, when you go off to college, you've got to find a community. You cannot say, I'm only going to be here for four years, so I'm just going to coast during this time. You've got to find that community where there is connection and engagement. You're going to be making some of the biggest decisions of your life, and you can't do that alone. We'll talk more about that today. To help believers experience true joy, to help believers avoid falling into patterns of sin. We're all going to sin, but John says if we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to guard believers against false teaching. That's been a major theme in John's book. There was a lot of false teaching going on in that day, as there is in our day, and we got to know the truth so we can distinguish truth from error. And then to allow believers to know with certainty that they are children of God and will be children of God forever. Today we are going to look at kind of the last part, not kind of, we're going to look at the last part of the book, chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 13 and uh, look at 13 through 21. We're going to see two things today. We're going to see 
uh, this aspect of prayer, and John's going to tell us that we can have, this is amazing, as human beings, sinful human beings, saved by grace, we can have this, this dynamic uh, conversation with the living God. Just think about that. We can talk to God, and John's going to tell us how to do that today. Secondly, John's going to tell us about protection. As a believer, we live in the world, but we are protected from the world by the Holy Spirit who lives within us. John wants to drill those two points home as he closes his book. John chapter 5, verse, verse 13, let me start there. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you can know you have eternal life. Next time together, we are just going to focus on that verse. 1 John 5, 13. It's a verse you need to memorize. It's a verse you need to know. And most of all, you need to know the content of the verse. What are these things that give us assurance that we have eternal life? That's what John has been writing about through the book. So as we review the book, we'll see these things that give us confidence that we're a child of God and will forever be. That's next time. Look at verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Let's think about that. Let's start with chapter 5, verse 14. And the first, there, there are these prerequisites we have to prayer. John has said that we have this confidence. We have assurance. We can take this to the bank. We never have to doubt this, that when we talk to God, He hears us. He hears us. He hears our voice. Here's the first prerequisite of prayer, that we are a what? A child of God. God hears the voice of His children. You parents know that, right? You know the voice you know the tone, you know the inflection of the voice of your child. You can spot it in a large crowd. And so God hears the voice of his children. That's the first prerequisite of our confidence that he hears us. He hears us if we are his child. So the first question is, have you trusted in Jesus Christ alone as the only way to have a relationship with the living God? And you know that with certainty. Did a funeral yesterday, officiated a funeral yesterday of a, um, uh, Diane Weiss, a person who came here to our church. Uh, her uh, kids uh, have been coming for a long time. And at the funeral, um, the two of her six children spoke, two of her 14 grandchildren spoke. And one of the sons was telling the story. He said he got this call from me. He said, I got this strange call from my mom one day. Uh, she said, you know, uh, Terry, I I'm, 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 have this great marriage. I can't imagine a better marriage. And we're in love, and, and, we're, and we just have this great relationship. They were living in Nashville at the time, and she said, we live in this beautiful area, and there's so much to do. It's so fun. I, I can't imagine a better life. But then she said, why am I so empty inside? Why is there this void in my heart? I've got all this stuff. Why is there this void? And her son was able to share with her that that void is filled by who? By Jesus. 
And she came to trust in Christ later on in her life. And we celebrated yesterday because we knew, because she was a child of God, that absent from the body, she was more alive than ever before. The prerequisite, the first one, of God hearing our prayer is that we are his child. The second prerequisite is this. Here's the confidence we have toward him that he hears us, but here's the kicker. If we ask anything, what? According to his will. Now, I got to confess. I like to pray according to my will. Anybody else in that boat? I like to say, God, here's what I want. And uh, here's my timing, by the way. And I need you to get it done. And if you don't do it, I'm going to be pretty disappointed in you. Because after all, you're my father. And, and I know what's best for my life. One commentator, John Stott, says this prayer is not a convenient device for imposing our will upon God or bending His will toward our, uh, with ours, but the prescribed way of subordinating or surrendering our will to His. It is by prayer that we seek God's will, embrace it, and align ourselves with it. Every true prayer is a variation of the theme, your will be done. So praying according to God's will. It's a challenge, isn't it? Because our will gets in the way. So how can we make certain, remember we have confidence that he hears us with the condition that we're praying according to his will. We want that confidence. I do, don't you? So how can we know we're praying according to God's will? Four things. Here's the first one. The first way we know we're praying according to God's will is if we are praying what is in accordance with God's written word. So we know if it's in Scripture, we call it His revealed will. Some people call it His general will. We know if it's in Scripture and we're praying in accordance with what's in Scripture, then we know we have confidence that He hears us. This is His will. He spells it out. So I don't have to go to God and say, God, I'm thinking about murdering someone. Should I do that or not? He's going to say, duh. He won't say that, but he'll say, it's right in my word. You don't kill other people. You don't have to ask me that. You don't have to go away and fast about that. It's right there. So we start with, should I commit adultery? No. Absolutely not. Should I marry someone who's not a believer? No, I don't do that. It's right here in God's Word. And so when we pray according to God's will, we're always praying according to God's Word. Now, that means what? We're reading it. And we're reflecting on it. And we're studying it. And we know what His revealed will is. Because when we pray according to His revealed will, we can always pray with confidence that He hears us. And by the way, the hear means He just doesn't hear us audibly. He responds. He answers. He's doing what not only we're asking Him to do because it's according to His will, He's responding to us. So the first thing is 
we got to be praying according to God's revealed will. The second part of praying according to God's will is we pray that we would be obedient. I don't know about you, but when temptation comes, it wouldn't be called temptation if it's not tempting, right? I want to do it. Or I don't want to do it. If God says do it, sometimes I don't want to do it. If God says don't do it, sometimes I want to do it. And there it is, a temptation staring me right in the face. Now, I know it is God's will that I don't do that or do it if he says to. So when I pray, God, here I am. I'm at a crossroads again. I need your strength. You promised me, you said in your word, that your Holy Spirit lives in me and you'll give me everything I need to do what you call me to do. And right now, I don't want to do what you're calling me to do. I don't feel like it. So I need to be obedient. I need to do what you're calling me to do. And when we pray that prayer, God will always answer us, right? Because we're praying according to his will. We know that he wants us to be obedient. And so we're praying according to his will. Now, let me give you two other things. By the way, in our discipleship curriculum, uh, we have, um, uh, in Living Grounded, we have a whole chapter on this, and we give five things we should do uh, regarding five principles uh, of, of, of learning God's will. And let me give you two others that go along with this praying in God's will. So first, how do we know we're praying according to God's will? Well, we're looking at His revealed will, right? It's black and white. We're praying for obedience to that. We know that's His will. But then there are things in life that aren't just specifically laid out in Scripture. Relationships. Who am I supposed to marry? Anyone find a verse in Scripture that says, I, John, am to marry Sue? If you saw that, that's a whole other issue. But um, it's not there. And so we call that not God's general will. We call that God's specific will. So how do you know you're praying according to God's specific will for your life? Well, two things. One, we are asking that God, through His Holy Spirit, reveals His specific will. We're asking, as a believer, we're a child of God. His Spirit lives within us. We're asking that as we read His Word, as we uh, obey, desire to obey His Word, His Spirit speaks to us, not in an audible voice, but His Spirit testifies with us, this is the way I want you to go. And sometimes you just know that you know that you know, right? God confirms that in your heart. The Holy Spirit is confirming that within you. But there's one other critical aspect of praying or living or following God's will in your life. And that is one of the themes of John's book. And it is, we need to make certain that we are in the community of other believers who God will use to confirm His specific will. God confirms His specific will in the community with other believers. Here's where a lot of people check out. I want to do it, 
It's within Scripture, right? I'm just a believer. He's a believer. I want to marry this guy, this girl. And believer, so I got that covered. That's his general will. I want to be obedient. I want the Holy Spirit to speak to me. But this last one is, I got to have people in my life who love me deeply and care for me intimately, who will speak honestly and show me my blind spots. When you are your own counselor, you are going to the worst counselor in the world. I can rationalize anything. I sometimes can even rationalize, I think that was the Holy Spirit speaking to me. But when I surround myself with people, we're going to talk about after the service some, some decisions. No decisions are, are, are made just singularly. No good decision. People are involved. People who love the Lord. Other believers. That's why community is so critical. That's why college students, you've got to get involved in community while in college. You are making the biggest decisions of your life. And if you do it without other people around, it is a dangerous thing to do. So we have to have those in our life. Now, sometimes we don't like what people tell us. But we have to be in a position where we're surrounded by people and we say, God, look, I got blind spots all over the place. And I need you to speak to these people. I need you to confirm this in my life, what I'm to do or not to do. And you've given these people who care for me, and I know they have my best interests at heart. I know you might have my best interests at heart. So here's the, here's the decision I'm trying to make. Will others speak into it? Do you have one? A couple questions here. Do you have those people? Right now, if you had a huge decision to make, who would you text and say, Meet me this afternoon? I desperately need you to speak into something. It better be a good number of people who care about you. Now, that means you've invested some time in their lives and they've invested time in your life, right? And second question is, will you be willing to listen to them? Because I see that all the time. Four people told me not to do this, but you know what? I'll do it anyway. Because I feel like it's right in my heart. Now, wait a minute. There's this process we work through, right? It's got to be in God's Word. It's got to be in obedience. The Holy Spirit's working for sure. But he also works in the lives of others to confirm it. Do you believe the Holy Spirit can speak to you and confirm it in your heart? Yeah. Do you believe the Holy Spirit can do the same thing through the lives of others to confirm that with you? For sure. The confidence we have that God hears us if we pray according to his will, his revealed will, obedience to his will, the Holy Spirit living in us, and in connection 
with other believers. Now, John says, here's the deal. I need you to be praying for yourself, for sure, but I need you to be praying for other people in this community. It's about intercessory prayer as well, right? We're praying for other people. So John's been telling us that throughout his book. We're going to lift others up. We're going to pray for them. But now he gets specific. He says, I want you to pray for those who are living in sin in a dangerous spot. Look at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother, another believer, committing a sin, now just hold on to that because it gets a little tricky as we work our way through this verse, and there's something we got to deal with to come back to this main point. The main point is praying for a believer living in sin, all right? If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sin that, lead, that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. So John's saying there's a sin that leads to death, but, but don't think that's the only sin. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that leads to death. All right, so what in the world is this sin that leads to death? Well, we don't know for sure. But let me give you three options, three possibilities, and then the pros and cons for both, for all three. First one is, there are some who say this is physical death. Uh, You're at a point in your life, you're a believer, but you're sinning, and you continue to sin, and God just says, you know what, it'd be better for you to be with me than for you to keep hurting people. Some people hold to that. Uh, they go to proof text. They'll go to uh, Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. Remember that story? Early church, Ananias and Sapphira, uh, husband and wife, they sell this piece of property. They come before the church. Ananias comes first, and he says, here's a piece of property. Here's what we got for it. We're giving it all to you. And uh, he was lying. And so, boom, he died. And then right after he took his body out, his wife came in, said the same thing. Boom, she died. And so some people say it's the sin unto death. That's the Ananias and Sapphira sin. People are doing something that's totally against God, and God says, rather have you with me than, than the damage you're doing. Other uh, uh, people will go to 1 Corinthians 11, and, and there it says uh, people are taking communion in an unworthy manner. And, and Paul says that's why some have fallen asleep. They died. So Paul says, or, or some people say, you know, that's, that's what he's talking about, the sin unto physical death. Now, Do you think, of all the communions that we've had here, that someone probably took it in an unworthy manner? But we've not been dragging bodies out of here. (laughs) And do you think that somewhere along the line, someone did something with their finances that maybe wasn't God-honoring, right? So that doesn't seem to be the sin unto death, physical death. Whether it's a sin or sins, we just don't know. Another option would be the unpardonable sin. Jesus talks about the unpardonable sin in Mark chapter 3 and Matthew chapter 12. We always look at the context first, and we see the context there is that Jesus is on earth, and he's performing miracles, and the Pharisees are looking on. And so he's performing this this miracle that is from God, 
And he, God, man, through the Holy Spirit, performs this miracle. And remember what the Pharisees said? As they saw this miracle with their own eyes, standing right there, they said, you are not doing this from God. You are what? Demon-possessed. And Jesus said, uh, Matthew 12, uh, Mark 3, that is the unpardonable sin, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was doing this miracle, and you blaspheme the Holy Spirit by attributing the work of God to Satan. The unpardonable sin. And so people will come in, talk, and say, I think I've committed the unpardonable sin. Or I think I know someone who's committed the unpardonable sin. Well, just relax. Take a deep breath. You have not committed the unpardonable sin. Okay? It can't happen. That sin cannot be duplicated today because Jesus is not on earth. Personally, you can't personally see him perform a miracle and then attribute the power of that miracle to Satan instead of the Spirit. You can't, we can't do that today. That was for a time and a place when Jesus was on earth. He's not walking on earth today. So if you think you've committed the pardon, unpardonable sin, you haven't. Good news? Okay. The other option is the, the real, I mean, the only unpardonable sin is what? Is, is, is rejecting Jesus all your life and dying without Jesus. And so some would say that's what they're talking about here. That's the, that's the sin unto death, spiritual death. A person has rejected, finally, rejected Jesus, and they died. And that's spiritual death. So you don't, don't pray for them. And I like that one, and I'd like to say that's it. But there's one problem with it. This verse started by saying, remember, if anyone sees his, what? Brother committing a sin. Brother is a word John uses for who? Believers. So the person's a believer. The bottom line is we don't know what the sin unto death is. We couldn't even guess about it. But we can't use what we don't know about this passage to keep us from doing what we do know about the passage. And what do we know about this passage? We should be praying for who? Believers who are caught in sin. You know anyone? If you know of a believer who has been who's caught in sin. And again, we're not talking about gossip. We're not talking about hearsay. God puts someone in your life and you know they are caught in sin. You need to be, John says, pray for them. Pray that God would work in their life. Pray that God would give you the courage and the opportunity to go speak into their life. Hey, you know what? I, I'm, I'm a sinner just like you. But God's put me here, and I saw something that just isn't good. I, I, need to, I need to lovingly confront you on that. See, as a community, it gets messy. We're to be involved in other people's lives. If 
they don't listen, then there's a whole process that Jesus gives in Matthew 18 to take someone with you or then go to a larger group and then finally maybe even with the elders or a ministry here at the church. Now, why would we do that? Because we want to embarrass someone? No. Because we're holier than thou and can't fall into that sin? No. Let me give this illustration. Uh, when Laura and I are sitting on our front porch on Saturday morning having coffee, that's, like our, that's one of the best times of the week. And so just suppose our grandkids are there and Laura and I are sitting on the front porch having coffee and our grandkids are playing in the middle of the road, right in the middle of the road. And you come down our street and you say, huh, they're having coffee on their porch while their grandkids are playing in the middle of the road. What would you say? They're irresponsible. What kind of grandparents are they? They are leaving their grandkids in a dangerous spot while they have coffee on the porch. And it would be a criminal of us to do that, right? Let our grandkids play in a road. So, when we know of other believers who are playing in the road, spiritually speaking, John says we, we can't stand by and drink coffee on the porch. We have to deal with that. Do you know right now of someone living in sin? Tag, you are it. You got to pray for them and you got to pray that God's going to give you the courage to address that issue in their life. That's the messiness, the hard part of community, right? Um, a lady was at the service last night. And so, so I, I don't know what you might see a person do. You, you may know of another person who uh, stopped coming to church. I mean, not, not like going to another church. That's fine. We, we have no corner on the market. But they just stopped going to church. They're a believer, and they stop engaging in community. That's a, that's a problem, Right? So you may have someone right now and say, I haven't seen that person in a long time. I'm going to reach out to them. person was here last night. We'll just call her Julie. And she said, so um, I talked to her after the service. And she said, uh, I, uh, I checked out. I got irritated about something with the Lord. And I checked out a church. Didn't come for a while. And she said, this guy named Paul uh, sent me this text. And he said, I have been thinking, I haven't seen you at church. I know you've not been coming for a long time. I've been thinking about a verse to send you. I can't think of one. So get your rear end back to church. <laughs> that may be a text you need to send this afternoon. True believers have confidence in prayer, and true believers have confidence that God is going to protect them, protect them all the way to eternity. Look at verse 18. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. That's been a theme throughout 1 John, right? If we're a Christian, we're going to sin, but we're just not going to continue in that pattern of sin. 
How long is that? I don't know. David uh, was in sin for nine months, but he was convicted and he came back. So I don't know. We're not putting a time limit on this continuing in sin. It's that a true believer will not continue in sin. But, so everyone born of God will not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God, so everyone's believers, he who is born of God is who? Jesus protects him. The Spirit of our Savior, the Holy Spirit, lives within us, and we are protected. And the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So we've been talking about this through, through First John, right? Here's the, here's the world. It's Satan's domain. Jesus says that Satan is the prince of this world. Paul says he's the God of this age. John says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And here we are, standing in the middle. It hits us from all sides. It hits us all the time. There, there are, the world opposes everything about God. The God we love, the God we call our Father, the one He calls us His child. But He says, you don't have to worry about that. I will protect you from the evil one. By the way, very practical application here. Can a believer be demon-possessed? Look at verse, look at verse 18 again. God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. A believer cannot be demon-possessed. So, God will protect those who know him from continuing sin. God will protect those who know him from Satan. And then finally, God will protect those who know him from false teaching. Look at verse 20 and 21. And we know that the Son of God has come. Now remember, John has been writing this letter to address false teaching, the dangers of it. Stay away from it. Know what's true, so you stay away from from what's false. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, His Son, Jesus Christ. He's the true one. He is the true God and he's the eternal life. He's the one who gives us eternal life. And then John ends this letter. You know, Paul says, hey, greet everyone there. Tell these people hello. I'm going to come to you soon. What's John say? John's black and white. Little children, what? Keep yourself from idols. An idol is anything that stands between us and the living God. An idol could be false teaching. That's in the context. That's what John's talking about here. An idol could be uh, another person in your life. Someone who stands between you and a full-out, full-orbed following of Jesus. An idol could be your career or that passion of your life. Is there something you're more passionate about than Jesus? That's an idol. An idol is probably not some statue in your house or your yard you're bowing down to. But it may be a material possession or a person or a hobby or a career 
or some passion of your life. And John says, we don't do that here. If we're those who truly want to follow hard after Jesus, then we are going to keep ourselves from idols. We are going to be regularly checking our heart. God, is there anything in my life that I've allowed to grow up? Any person in my life I've allowed to come between me and you? That's why so many marriages have trouble. Because a wife tries to make husband God and the husband tries to make the wife God and we just do a bad job at being God, don't we? You cannot get from any person what you can only get from the living God. Worship team's going to come out and uh, sing a song. We're going to ask that you... uh, just allow the song to be sung over you. Uh, you can sing along uh, if you want. At some point, they'll ask us to stand. But let the song be your prayer. Let the song be uh, the prayer of your heart. And think about this aspect of what, what's standing between you and, you, and, you and the Lord. The song, two stanzas are this. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin. Maybe you're there today. Jesus is calling. He always calls us back, doesn't he? Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you think, do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Leave behind your regrets and mistakes. Aren't you glad? And you don't have to carry the past with you when you have a future with God. Come today, there's no reason to wait. Jesus is calling. Bring your sorrows and trade them for joy. From the ashes, a new life is born. Jesus is calling. Father, let these words wash over us. And let us know that you are speaking to us, and let us know, Lord, that you are calling us uh, either back to, to yourself or to a closer relationship with you. Lord, help us to have that confidence in our prayer because we know who you are and we know who we are, and our desire is to follow hard after you. Be with us, Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.
If you'd like to pray, there'll be those up here uh, to pray with you. And uh, as many of you know, um, you got an email this week. Uh, we have some family time here uh, after in about 15 minutes. So let's say 1220. Uh, make sure you go get your children because we want all the children's workers to be able to come uh, to our time. We have some announcements to make. And so that'll be at 1220. This is for members and regular attenders. Father, we pray that you would be with us as we go. We pray, Lord, that you would be the one who uh, speaks strongly into our heart to let us know that we're right where we need to be and we're following hard after Jesus and we're able to demonstrate to those in our life that he is the passion of our heart. Be with us, Father, as we go. In Christ's name, amen.